0: Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Luke chapter 8 starts with the words, Soon Afterward which links our passage today to the end of chapter 7. Now, don't forget, in chapter 7, we ended with a Pharisee inviting Jesus over for dinner. And as they were kicking back, there was this woman that came in, and she had quite the reputation. But she immediately went to the feet of Jesus. She was seeking mercy. But the Pharisee, he wasn't impressed with any of this. So Jesus used this scene as a teaching moment. You see, the woman came for mercy. And you know what she received? She received mercy. The Pharisee, on the other hand, thought he had no need for mercy. So he received no mercy. Jesus told a parable to clue him into the fact that he was so needy for grace. But it appears, as far as we know, that that message, that, that parable fell on deaf ears. So with that, let's get into chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 1. Quote, "...soon afterward he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means." So right here, we see that Jesus is traveling around, he's preaching the gospel, he's telling people about the kingdom of God. And so far in our journey through the book of Luke, there's nothing really new about that. That's been what Jesus has been doing all the time, he's been very consistent with us. It also isn't new in the book of Luke to mention the twelve, referring to the twelve apostles who were always with him, always learning from him, always seeing what he was doing. But verses 2 and 3 bring some new things. You see, it's not just the 12 who are traveling with Jesus. There are women who are with them. And that really brings me to my first point of today's passage. And that is, all followers of Jesus have a part in spreading his word. Jesus was called a rabbi. That means he was a teacher. Now, culturally, it would have been unheard of and really downright scandalous for a rabbi to be traveling with women. You might be wondering, well, what's wrong with that? Well, absolutely nothing. You see, it was just rules that people added on. It was just a culture that they were in. But do not forget that Jesus, though he was passionate about the word of God, he was passionate about the law. He could not have cared less about obeying rules that men have made up. That was pointless to him. His goal was to glorify the Father. He never sought to gain the approval of man. It was all about pleasing the Father, which goes to the Word, not the made-up rules. But you see, this is a world that did not value women at all. The life of Jesus, though, proves that He does value women. And if we remember, Jesus is the Son of God. He was there at the very beginning, when it was male and female, that God created mankind in His image meaning that men and women are both image bearers of the Most High. So he wasn't going to let any kind of social norm or rule that some angry guy came up with To get in the way of him demonstrating that there are image bearers in the name of Mary Magdalene, Susanna, and Joanna that are following him in a part of what he is doing. They have a part in spreading his word. I really want to press the point of how radical this is a little bit more. You see, not so fun fact, but in a Jewish world, a woman's testimony would not have even been admissible in court. And if you zoom out a little bit to the Roman world that they are in, we see that the Romans created a divide between men and women as well. For example, in the Roman Colosseum, women had to sit in the worst of seats. There were seats where men of different political or economic privilege would get to sit in, but... There is also a section that that women would be resigned to. I'll put a link to an article by the Smithsonian that supports uh, what I just said in the show notes. Now, obviously, the Colosseum would only be in operation a few decades later after the life and ministry of Jesus. But I'm just using the Roman Colosseum as an example to show you how women were treated, how they were viewed in the first century, how radical and. And wild it was that Jesus was incorporating them into his ministry. Also, on a kind of an adjacent topic here, if you're familiar with the Roman Empire survey going around social media right now, you can all say, every last one of you, can say that you have now thought about the Roman Empire today. Maybe against your will, but you thought about it nonetheless. These ladies, as recorded in the Gospel Accounts, Held to their faith, they held to Jesus. They had experiences with Jesus that changed everything. And because of that, they were going to be faithful followers of Jesus for the rest of their days. They were going to be a huge part of spreading His word. Now, remember the theme that's been popping up in the book of Luke over and over and over again is that Jesus is for everyone in whom faith is found. In faith, was most definitely found in these ladies. So in this passage, we have Jesus, we have the twelve, we have these ladies whose lives have been changed by Jesus, and every single person in that group and those who are not mentioned, they have a part to play in the Word of God going forward. And that's the same about the church today. Every single person in the church, every man, woman, and child has a role in the Word of God going forward. Everyone is important. Everyone is valuable. Everyone is made in the image of God, meaning they have purpose. They have value. They have dignity to them. I want you to understand that you have a role in the Word of God going forth. Like, it is not an accident that you work where you work, or you go to school where you go to school. It is not an accident about the teams you play on or your kids play on. It is not an accident about the groups you're in, the neighborhood you're in. All the circles in your life are not there by accident, but actually there is a sovereign God who is moving things, though we can't see it, so that we can be where we need to be, when we need to be, for His kingdom to expand through us in where He has placed us. Do not forget, we are ambassadors for Christ. Typically, we just read one verse after another, keep everything like chronological. Well, today we're going to do a little bit different. For the rest of our verses today, it may look a little bit choppy. It's going to look like we're bouncing all around the passage like a pinball or something. We will go back and forth between what Jesus says in the parable, and then what he later says that that piece of the parable means. To start off with, we're going to go verse 4 the first part of verse 5. And then we're going to see the explanation Jesus gives us in verse 11. Verse 4, quote, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to see him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God, End quote. All right, so this big crowd forms, and Jesus starts the parable of the sower. The sower is anyone who is teaching, who is speaking on, who is spreading God's word, who's sharing God's word. Now, remember, we all have a part to play. And what we see here, what we're going to see as this passage progresses, is that the sower doesn't try to judge what's going to be good soil. He just sows. He just casts out the seeds every way that it will go. Remember, Paul told us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So it is not our role to judge this soil or that soil. Our role is just to cast the seed. It's not our role to try to put limits on what the power of God, which is wrapped up in the gospel, is capable of doing. For the rest of the passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see different responses to the Word of God being spread. That leads me to my second point today, and that is, hearing the Word of God is a spiritual battle. In these responses that we are going to see, we're going to see this spiritual battle being fought with three big enemies. Let's read the remainder of verse 5, and then we're going to see the explanation Jesus gives us in verse 12. All right, quote, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled under foot, and the birds of the air devoured it. The ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. End quote. So our first group that hears the Word of God is the group that instantly rejects the Word of God. But why do they reject the Word of God? The devil has come, and he has waged war on their hearts, and he has won. So our first enemy in this spiritual battle is the devil himself. Listen, Satan is real. Demons are real. They're the other side of a spiritual battle that our eyes cannot always see. But please understand, That which is spiritual, angels, demons, and the like are just as real as the car you drive or the device you're using to listen to me right now. The last thing Satan and the demons he leads wants is for people to believe the Word of God. So they are fighting with everything they've got to keep people from believing. They'll distract someone from hearing. They'll fill them with pride saying, Oh, you're too smart and sophisticated to believe something like that. Or they'll lie to the hearer and they'll say, oh, you're too far gone to be helped. The devil is a liar, accuser, and destroyer. His end is defeat. His end is the lake of fire. But he wants to take as many people with him as he can. The first enemy in the spiritual battle is the devil. But I want you to understand, dear listener, that the devil, though he is stronger than you, he's stronger than me, he is nothing compared to Christ. You see, we go forward with courage in the spiritual battle because though there may be something that is scary to us, that which is scary to us is terrified of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that over and over in the Gospels. The reactions demons give to Jesus is one of fear and one of terror. They know who the strongest one is, and that is Jesus himself. This whole thing about salvation does not rely on how clever The sower is, or how charismatic the sower is. It doesn't hinge on the sower having all the right words. What it hinges on, what it depends on, what it is desperate for, is the power of Jesus to come in and bring the dead to life. So, though this first enemy may sound scary, I want you to hear Christ is better, Christ is stronger, Christ is bigger. So, now we're going to go on to verse 6 and we're going to pair it with verse 13. Quote, And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up it withered away because it had no moisture. And the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word receive it with joy. But these have no root, for they believe for a little while and in time of testing fall away." End quote. So what's the enemy here? Well, this is one of those situations where we don't look to like an external foe. There's no threat outside. This is one of those situations where we have to understand the call is coming from inside the house. It's us. We are the problem. So, enemy number two, the hearer. So, I've heard this described as the emotional hearers. They initially get so hyped up about the gospel, but time reveals that their faith wasn't real, that their emotions just got the best of themselves. Now, I'm not saying emotional responses are bad. A lot of times they can be good and powerful. Someone taking a step in their pursuit of Jesus and it can move them along their journey. We absolutely should feel things as we discuss how God has planned out all of history in order to adopt us in his family, to save us from our sins, to rescue us. The problem is that it can't be only an emotional response. If it's only an emotional response, something has gotten so wrong because it's got to go deeper than that. Listen, there's so many days that I don't feel it, that I am not emotionally there, I'm not charged up, I'm not whatever, but I still have to rest in my soul that my soul is going to trust in Him, because my faith is not based on what I feel any given day or any given situation. It's got to be based on Jesus, who is the same yesterday, is the same today, and Hebrews tells us is the same forever. So for the group that falls to enemy number two, which is the hearer falling to themselves, when they stop feeling it, they fall away. Now, there's a million reasons why someone could stop feeling it. A big one is the time of testing that Jesus mentioned here. Maybe things get hard, or maybe things don't go the way they wanted them to, so they walk away. Sometimes we can have misunderstandings of Jesus and think that he's going to make life so much easier for us. In all ways, it's just going to get easy, and when it doesn't get easy, we think, okay, This is not for me. I'm not having fun. And they fall away. If we track this in the New Testament, I mean, Paul wrote about this in Romans, Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter, James wrote about it in, well, James. Oftentimes, God will use the trials and the testing in our life to reveal something there to mold us and make us more like Jesus, to show that our faith is genuine, to actually lead us somewhere that is better than we could ever imagined. It's not a sign of Him forsaking us. It's actually a sign of Him working in us and doing beautiful and wondrous things. But unfortunately, we probably all know those who started strong, but faded away. So our first enemy was the devil himself. Our second enemy was the hearer. We're our own worst enemy more often than not. Now on to verse 7, paired with verse 14. Quote, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. End quote. It's a pretty wild thing that this group looks like they really do believe. But as they go their way, the world looks awfully good. There's so many things in the world that are so enticing that maybe they have FOMO, the fear of missing out. But in this, we have enemy number three revealed, and that is the world. So we've got the devil, we've got the hearer, and we've got the world. You see, these people, they they hear the word of God, but their eyes aren't on it. Instead, their eyes drift. They get distracted to the things of this world. Instead of laying up treasures in heaven, they're like, no thanks, I want treasures now. Instead of being a disciple of Jesus, they choose to be a disciple of the world. Their affection is too divided to love Jesus. And Oh my goodness, how big of a trap could this be in? How many out there are playing some sort of Christian hokey pokey? They've got one foot in and one foot out. And they don't know what to do because, yeah, they want Jesus, but they also want riches to be right there, a part of the equation. They're big on love and grace and mercy and eternal life, but they're also big on the bank account and comfort and what they want to do, not so much the stuff about take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. They've got one foot in and one foot out. They want to be like the world. They want the temptations of the world. Have you ever played out in the ocean? Maybe when you were a kid, and you've been out in the ocean, and you're jumping into the waves, you're having a great time, and then you look up sometime later to see that you have drifted way down the shoreline. You're not in front of the building that you're staying in that week. You are now way down the shore, because you've drifted, and you didn't even know. You see, for these people, with their eyes on the world instead of their eyes on Christ, They can drift so far without even knowing. Belief can be taken away before it starts by the lies of Satan. It can appear real for a while only to have the hearer walk away through trials or temptations or some other thing. And belief can be choked out because the hearer treasures the world more than they could ever treasure Christ. Now on to verse 8 and verse 15. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience, End quote. This is my last point today. Faith produces fruit in the believer. See, this is the group that hears and they believe. Notice how he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All the other group have ears too, but they just don't hear it. Faith didn't take hold of the heart of the first three groups, but here in the good soil, the person hears the gospel, believes the gospel, is changed by the gospel, and bears fruit. Listen, there are so many interpretations to this passage. There's debate on how many groups are actually saved, born-again believers in Christ. This is the only group. The good soil is the only group that finds salvation. It is definitely the only group we can know for sure has found salvation in Christ. How do we know they're good soil? They bear fruit. Jesus told us that we would know his followers by their fruit. The late great Billy Graham is credited as once saying that even 85% of church members are probably lost. Sure, they may attend church. They may hold down a pew. But is there fruit in their life? Is there fruit in your life? When someone hears the gospel and believes they're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to that new believer and starts working in them. That produces fruit. The Holy Spirit grows fruit. It's what he does. But notice, Jesus says, with patience. Jesus knows you're not going to be perfect. And honestly, you're not going to make some gigantic stride of growth overnight. It takes time. But over time, as you continue to invest time in the Word, as you continue to call out in the Lord, as you commune with your God, and you grow that kind of belief that leads you to obeying what you're reading, obeying how the Spirit leads, the Holy Spirit will do amazing, miraculous things in your life. But understand, this is what we call sanctification, and sanctification is slow. There's no fast-forward button. There's no skipping to a later chapter or later part of this story. It is a slow process, and Jesus knows that and has grace for it. Are you more like Christ today than you were two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Are you slowly moving into the direction of Jesus? So in this chapter 8 of the book of Luke, what we see here is that we all have a part to play in the Word of God going forth. And what we see is when the Word of God is sown, when it is scattered out, there's a lot of reasons it's rejected. Sometimes it's the devil, sometimes it's the hearer, sometimes it's the world. But sometimes that seed finds good soil and miraculous and beautiful things happen. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain because he gives purpose and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast